change the way it's done, do it quicker, faster, whatever it is, that's true innovation. How'd they do that? Step number one would be try it. Have you tried? What, what innovation are you talking about? What's the number one priority? What do we have to innovate first? Hi everyone, Mark here and welcome to the Indifference Podcast where we have conversations with people at the top of the field and try and understand what is it they do to create progress in key areas. On recent episodes, there's been a lot of talk about the value of building teams and networks and communities to really focus in on tackling particular problems. And on this episode, we have a conversation that looks at this from a different angle that really gives us some unique insights. Today, I'm joined by Inez Posadilla. Inez is Professor of Politics at the ORT Uruguay University and the Senior Research Specialist at Civicus, the World Alliance for Citizen Participation. A recent report from Civicus estimated that less than 4% of the world's population live in countries with open civic spaces, where they can organize, participate, and communicate with each other freely and actually influence the political and social structures around them. Enos has also written reports recently with Civicus that ask some big questions such as how do communities set the political agenda and how do they make sure that local actions feed into bigger global movements? On this episode, Ines shares some key insights on how recent social movements are shaping our society and ultimately how these are changing our perspective on what's possible. So big thanks to Ines for taking the time to join me. You're definitely going to pick up a few insights from our conversation. So let's get started. Hope you enjoy. Ines, thanks very much for coming on today. I'm really looking forward to having a chat with you. Thank you for having me. If you just begin by, you know, looking back at your, your career so far and just asking, what was it that first got you interested in citizen action? I think it was a rather long and winding road that got me here. I actually started quite far from um, the actual world, you know, where things happen. Uh, because uh, I started my career in academia and in thinking and, and writing about, uh, about political theory. So uh, philosophy and, you know, everything classics and wrote about uh, you know, democracy and um, kind of things. But at some point, you know, reality took over. Um, I am originally from Argentina, and uh, so you know, politics and uh, it's very, um, you know, shakes shakes us up uh, from time to time in Argentina. And so in 2001, we had a huge crisis. And I, at that time, I was uh, working and was doing research on issues uh, of political representation and the quality of democracy. So I was working a lot about elections and that kind of thing. And then uh, this huge uh, crisis of representation erupted where people went to the streets massively and uh, just got rid of uh, one government after another. And they um, started um, saying, you know, just uh, want, they wanted to, all politicians to go away and to leave, uh, you know, decisions in the hands of the people. And um, so that was the greatest example I've ever seen of a, an actual crisis of representation. Not, you know, the usual thing that we read about. Academics would speak about the crisis of representation when people didn't feel they were represented by uh, politicians or parties, and they said that in, in polls, right? And, uh, and then what followed was even more interesting. Because people in the process of getting rid of the government and telling, you know, just you're useless, we are going to do things ourselves, 
people started organizing in neighborhood assemblies and trying to just actually get matters into their own hands. So this didn't quite work out very well in the end. It was a very, very interesting process of um, participation, right, and, and actions. So uh, that's how I moved from speaking about representation and institutional politics into, you know, looking at uh, what actually people could achieve when working together. And, and then um, probably, you know, I was meant to cross paths with Civicus at some point. I mean, it, it took a, a few years until I actually did. But, uh, but Civicus is, is an organization that works to promote uh, citizen participation across the world. Actually, you know, the full name is uh, Civicus World Alliance for Citizen Participation. Uh, the work that uh, that Civicus does is about first um, monitoring the the constraints uh, that uh, don't allow people speak up, act together, and change things. Uh, so you know the different constraints that a civic space is subjected to around the world. You know the constraints on the on the freedoms of uh, association, uh, expression, and peaceful assembly. But on the other hand, uh, rather than just uh, keep you know crying about all, all the bad things that happen to civil society and, and, and activists around the world, what Civicus also does is uh, document uh, and promote uh, citizen action. So actually, you know, to look at you know even in contexts where against all odds people manage to uh, get together with others and uh, achieve lots of things. You know, I came here uh, from uh, the, just through the door of uh, political theory and, you know, Arendt's uh, ideas about action and what action means and, and power that comes out of action. You know, action being a thing that people just do by, by getting together, right? And that's where power comes from. So I guess I, I just was meant to cross paths with an organization that uh, was working um, to actually change things and not just to you know, write about them. <laughs> Ines, it's fascinating to hear. What do you think is it exactly about a crisis that really gets people together where they don't just focus on the anger of the position to ruin, but they really unite and trigger all this action? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I think, you know, there's a whole bookshelves of, you know, literature uh, on social movements, trying to, to just understand uh, what triggers collective action and, you know, why it's not enough to record objective things that happen in the world. You know, that there's no description of like an objective situation that can account for action actually erupting because you know in that case you should just look at you know where things are really bad and then you would expect uh, a revolution to come out of that right and that's not what happens actually there is a lot of, about you know the work people do uh, to interpret the situation that they are living in like the, the result of human action uh, so that there's someone who can be blamed for the situation, and then that there's something that can be done about the situation. What I mean is, if you are in a context where, you know, the inequalities are huge and, and injustices are like, you know, you see it from the outside and you see, I mean, this cannot be like this. This situation cannot go, go on. I mean, obviously, someone is going to do something about it because it's unacceptable. But, you know, it's unacceptable for whom? According to whose standards, right? I mean, if, if you live in such a situation, but you understand that the situation is the result of, like, nature, the natural state of things, then you won't do anything about it. You won't question the natural order, right? So if you... If you are a woman and you are subordinated to men, but you think that's how things are supposed to be, 
uh, then yeah, that's it, right? So I think, you know, civil society, what activism does, it's actually reframe situations and understand them in a different way. So a situation that is maybe at some point be viewed as, you know, just the natural order of things is reinterpreted as uh, an injustice. So that's, I think that's how citizen action actually uh, comes to be, right? When, when people decide and uh, start viewing a situation as something that is not the way things should be, and when they can view an alternative, when they actually uh, have uh, sort of the picture of how things should look like. I just think that's a very interesting thing of how these things come to take place because, you know, when we look at the news here, I think we see a lot of, you know, massive breaches of people's human rights around the globe. I think we just have an assumption that change is going to happen now because the truth has been exposed. But like you say, sometimes we just have to dig a bit deeper to really figure out, you know, well, who is this actually a problem for and, you know, what's the real cause? Uh, yeah, I was, I, I was thinking, yeah, that's uh, when dictators and, uh, accuse uh, human rights activists and organizations at home of being, uh, you know, just guided by foreign values. And I mean, of course, and that's a, a way of delegitimizing them. But, but in a way, what they are looking at is global values being uh, disseminated around the world and people uh, all over the world absorbing human rights uh, standards and applying them into the context and claiming them for, for themselves. So, yeah, of course, I mean, for those uh, uh, dictators, it would be great if people remained isolated and never knew that there's a different world that's possible because there are women's movements, LGBT people, indigenous people in other countries that um, are claiming their rights and they can do the same. There's a lot to be said about how human rights values and norms uh, travel and are adopted by people all over the world. Ines, when you're in your work documenting these examples of problems taking place around the world, and also, you know, when, when you're trying to support the communities to take the action that they think is going to address their problems, you know, how do you know what to focus on? Um, you, may, you may have seen that Civicus uh, uh, produces a civil society report that looks back, you know, to the previous year and, and tries to identify the trends, you know, about what is happening to civil society around the world and also what civil society is doing about what's happening to it in a variety of areas, including, for example, you know, protests around climate or around threat and battery issues, social issues, women's rights, LGBTI movements, and also movements for the rights of indigenous peoples or migrants and refugees. And also we, we look at uh, civil society action at the international level, right? So in international institutions and forums and you know, and, and to show that change is not just possible, but, you know, it's actually happening because people are actually achieving a lot in, in many places. So we, we do focus on, on those successes, but also we, we cover struggles that are not so successful because we, we also think, you know, there's a lot to learn about failing, from failure or from challenges and how you overcome them. Uh, that's where the fact that we are a very big uh, network, you know, that Civicus is uh, an alliance of organizations and activists around the world comes into play because we uh, reach out to our members. We have uh, 10, more than 10,000 members uh, around the world in almost every country. And so we reach out to them in different ways. Of course, you know, with surveys sometimes and you know, just to make sure that we don't have gaps in coverage and we are actually looking at the big picture but also 
we we do uh, in-depth interviews to capture uh, you know the most interesting stories of civil society society action so our reports in the end uh, showcase those stories and 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 you know just basically just try to amplify those so that's more or less our process it's incredible. I actually had a look at some of the reports and hear all the different stories and all the different actions that are taking place all over the world to respond to it. You know, a lot of these really basic needs in different uh, communities. You know, within that, using that as a guide to influence what's going to happen over the next 12 months, Inez, how do you know if that approach is working? We use our report a lot for our advocacy. We, as I said, we are a, a very big alliance, so uh, we we want to to have one place where we sort of set what our positions are to all these things that are happening. What position we take when there's an, uh, you know these elections that were rigged or the this revolution that's taking place or this uh, military coup that happened or you know what what we have to say about it and what's our position about it. We try to, to set a position that's guided by a set of principles that never change. And we try to just make sure we align ourselves, the whole alliance is aligned behind uh, this position. Our aspiration, you know, to have this report actually reflect the voices and, and the perspectives of civil society on the ground. You know, that's our main aspiration. And we sense check it with our members. We get feedback and we respond to feedback and we make sure that get the, the understanding that, you know, this is a tool that they use for the work. That, um, that, um, that civil society around the world uh, is questioned a lot uh, by their governments, for example, right? Uh, I mean, why, who are you? I mean, who voted for you? Who elected you? Uh, what position do you hold? Why are you here? Why, you know, why do you think you deserve a seat at the table? Uh, so, so civil society has to just justify its existence all the time. And, you know, having this report that shows the value of civil society, it's something that uh, I think our members are most grateful for and, and it's very useful for the work. That's a key aspect. I think that's really popped up a lot is that when you are working in these particular areas, you do have to act with that urgency, try things as quick as you can. You don't have months and months to, to sit around analyzing if things are going as planned. You really have to get something out fast at people that are on, on the ground trying to trigger the change. Mm, yeah. Taking all of the work that you've done so far, Inez, you know, what would you say have been some of the biggest insights so far? So, I mean, this is a very relevant question because we've been looking a lot at trends identified for the past 10 years, trying to put together, you know, our, how the world changed uh, over these past 10 years. Of course, you know, looking back a year, we, we would get the impression that it was all about COVID, uh, which actually wasn't. I mean, that's, that's good news. Uh, so um, we, we we actually published a report uh, based focused on civil society responses to the pandemic uh, a few months ago. And now we are ignoring a little bit COVID and, and looking at what happened uh, despite COVID, regardless, you know, how all those struggles that continued under COVID. That, that was not what the only thing that you think was about. I guess the pandemic and the responses yeah, the, the governments brought to the pandemic uh, was sort of the lens through which we are seeing the year, you know, it tinted the whole year. 
but uh, kept, you know, the, the struggles uh, that were going on, they continued under COVID. I mean, just look at the U.S. and the Black Lives Matter and the movement for racial justice, right? I mean, that happened under COVID, and, 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 and similar things happened all over the world. So basically looking back, uh, not just one year, but, you know, 10 years, we, we definitely find a sustained uh, crackdown civic space. You know, the, the space for civil society to promote rights, to pursue uh, social justice. Uh, I mean, it was always contested, but over the past few years, we've seen greater attacks uh, against civil society. Not just, and this is quite interesting, not just from uh, the state, you know, which is the classical actor that uh, restricts civic space, but also we've seen the rise of anti-rights groups you know, groups mobilized against women's rights, against LGBTI rights, also against migrants and refugees and, you know, white supremacists uh, and, and all those groups that are also restricting rights-oriented or progressive civil society, let's say. And they are not just uh, working on their own because uh, they have, uh, you know, governments that are much aligned with them in many places. And so they have been emboldened by those governments being on their side. So uh, I think that's, uh, that's a very important trend that has a lot of consequences for civil society. We also seen a democratic regression if you look in the in the short term, I mean, and, and, and when I'm speaking about the decade, I still see that as the short term, right? If you look historically in the long term, like a century, then you would see a continuous, like, you know, progress of democracy. But then over the past few years, there's been a democratic regression. And we just saw uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, the, the Economist uh, Index of Democracy that came out and they are seeing, you know, the biggest regression they've seen since the index has been published for 15 years. So we've seen it everywhere, like every continent has their own examples of presidents uh, rewriting constitutions, uh, standing for additional terms, rigging elections, uh, you know, right-wing populism, nationalism, people embracing more extreme positions, right? Because those governments are uh, experts at at polarizing uh, uh, public opinion. And uh, the space for recent debate has become much smaller. So I think, you know, there's a risk there for, for democracy. Definitely agree. But, you know, specifically around that crackdown on civil society space and this democratic regression that's emerging, what have been some of your insights over the last 10 years for responding to that? One of, one of the of the ingredients, I, I'd say, of the degradation of democracy, democratic debate, uh, has to do with the rise of the disinformation economy. And of course, I mean, the world changed a lot over the past decade in terms of, you know, the rise of social media uh, that definitely created new opportunities for civil society organization, communication, mobilization, but at the same time, you know, disinformation has reached pandemic levels. <laughs> and you can see that even during the pandemic, right? Disinformation about you know, health issues, basic, very issues about facts of, about science. It's about COVID and vaccines, but it's also about migrants, you know, who are maybe in some context they are uh, blamed. Or, you know, it's about LGBTI people, or it's about women's rights. Disinformation is all over the place, right? So what is civil society doing about it? <laughs> well, a lot of things, uh, but uh, it's a little bit worrying. Because these attacks uh, are happening at a global scale. But most responses that we're seeing are local responses. 
So there's, I think there's a little bit of an imbalance between, you know, the attack and the response. But yeah, but we're seeing a lot of, of, of responses at different levels. I mean, in every country where democracy is challenged, where electoral processes are put in question, civil society is uh, mobilizing to monitor elections, to make sure that it actually happened the way they should and to challenge uh, the governments who don't respect uh, the results of elections. Uh, civil society and especially organizations that are more focused on you know, technology and social media are also putting out there, you know, for example, fact-checking initiatives. But, uh, but they, they also realize you know, that's like contributing with a, with a drop in the ocean. So they are also working at a higher level with um, social media companies to try to put uh, in place, you know, certain policies and also with uh, traditional media uh, organizations like, uh, you know, newspapers, with their, just to, to put some safeguards on their, uh, the work that they do online uh, to make sure, for example, you know, some simple things that like is uh, when, when you look at an article in the garden uh, and it's an, the article says it, this article is a year old, this article was published six months ago, to make sure that information is not recycled in a way that becomes disinformation. Uh, civil society is mobilizing against every one of these restrictions that are being imposed, right? Whatever it is, if it's a law against, uh, you know, just to limit the freedom of expression, or if to limit the freedom of assembly, people are very good at disobeying orders when they are, you know, civil disobedience, basically, when those orders are arbitrary. And so they um, find new ways to protest if the normal, the usual ones are being uh, limited. So I'd say, you know, uh, every one of the regressive um, trends that we've identified, and there's more, I mean, there's a lot more that I've talked about. <laughs> there is always someone out there who had a good idea and put it in practice, and it's working for them. And so we want civil society to be better connected and to learn about those things. Uh, because, you know, those exchanges of experiences allows civil society to adapt um, successful strategies in their context. Because, you know, that's what, let's say, dictators and authoritarian leaders are doing. I mean, they connect with each other. They learn from each other. They adapt each other's tactics all the time. I mean, if they are doing that, we need to do the same. We need to do it, but, you know, 10 times the same in order to protect ourselves against them. That's so key. And Again, it speaks to your point of access to information because it forms the basis of being able to grasp what is the problem, what, what's taking place, and you know, what can we do about it. But you know, looking to the future, Ines, what are your hopes for you know, how countries and communities respond to these sorts of challenges in the future? You know, among the trends we've, we've identified, there are positive trends. It's not all bad, right? What I want, I mean, my hopes is to see a lot more of that enough of that so that it makes actual positive irreversible change although i know you know in the in the area of human rights you know change is irreversible and that's something we need to be very careful about you know just i mean you cannot just fall asleep once you you achieve something you need to really guard your your victories but anyway uh, so we have identified a positive trends and i think the most positive one is uh, the new forms of civil society action the sectors the segments of the population that have mobilized the fact that people who were not mobilized before now they are civil society actually 
have set the agenda. And you know that uh, it's not something, it's not an aspiration. It's not that we think that the civil society should set the agenda. I mean, civil society has set the agenda. I mean, climate change wouldn't be an issue if it weren't for civil society. And, and, and if you look back decades, uh, none of the important issues would have been an issue if it hadn't been for civil society. Women's rights, nuclear weapons, uh, the environment, and everything that has been like defining for our lives became an issue on the agenda because civil society pushed for it to be there. So the last few years, we've seen you know, mass protests, online campaigns, mobilizing creativity, capturing people's imagination, capturing the headlines. I know the climate movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, the Me Too movement. They changed discourse, they changed the narrative, they changed actually the way we see things uh, at an incredible pace. We're not talking decades or centuries to bring like a change of mentality. We're talking years, right? Uh, so waves of protests have challenged governments. Sometimes they have changed governments. And many of these movements, look at every one of them, uh, they are centered, uh, we know, on a new generation of creating their own movements, creating their own ways of participating and uh, doing their own activism. And it's, they are quite different from the old ones. Even if you, if you look at Black Lives Matter as like, so, sort of like, you know, the heir of the civil rights movement of the 60s, I mean, it's quite different. The way it's organized horizontally, the way it's not like a, a movement that follows a, a leader, a leader that used to be, of course, a man and, and it used to be a strong man, but it's not a leader, leaderless movement. You know, as, as young people in Hong Kong have said, ours is a leaderful movement. We have lots of leaders all over the place. And that's also uh, sort of the key to their success because, you know, that's a movement where the authoritarian government of China cannot just, you know, leave without a leader just by jailing or killing one person because there are leaders all over the place. And this is the kind of new movement that we are seeing, right? And uh, the other thing we're seeing is not just, you know, young people, but it's also young women. So, so many women are taking leading roles in these movements. And so many people coming from excluded groups are asserting the value of their perspectives in these movements, right? So I think, you know, these movements are the new civil society frontier. They are challenging even not just their governments, but they are challenging civil society. They're challenging our assumptions of what civil society is, what civil society looks like, how civil society works. That's the future. I mean, that's how I see the future. It sounds pretty exciting because I'm even thinking of one of the phrases you used in, in your uh, reports was that this once in a generation opportunity that we have now to kind of build back better. Just to hear you talk about all them, yes. them hopes and insights, you can really see how it's all going to really hopefully keep coming together over the next few years and can bring about the society that, that we all want. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, so the, only, the one thing about uh, COVID, there's, there's the, the, the fact that it revealed lots of cracks in our structures. Exactly those cracks that all these social movements were, were talking about. All of them. So, you know, that's uh, something that we need to be focusing on. Uh, when is the year of action? Hopefully we can 
keep the momentum going with a lot of them uh, stories and lessons that you you've shared with us uh, today you know so uh thanks very much for your time it's been incredible to hear about a lot of the work that you're doing and civicists are doing as well so thanks very much for everything no oh, thank you for your interest <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Mark here again. Thanks for listening and I really hope you enjoyed our conversation and picked up a few insights from it. Be sure to leave us a rating from where you get your podcasts and even better, share it with a friend who you think will enjoy it. Thanks again and I hope you tune in next week.